Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com or reach out to me directly. My email is michael at bullrealty.com. Well, here we are. It is the beginning of the second quarter, 2023. We're certainly going through some turmoil. The uh, Fed has raised interest rates extremely fast, causing a lot of turmoil in banking uh, and, the, and, and, and the commercial real estate industry, of course, which is what we like to talk about here, right? What about foreign investors? You know, one thought that might be that crosses my mind when it comes to foreign investors is the lower leverage, maybe some of them all cash. Uh, and, you know, when investors can buy properties at a lower basis because potentially they have less competition, from leveraged buyers, do the buyers come out? Well, let's see what foreign investors, how they're looking at allocations, how they're looking at sectors, uh, what markets they're looking at, and uh, how they might be looking at U.S. real estate. Please welcome my guest. It's Gunnar Branson. He's CEO of AFIRE, and he's joining us on video. Gunnar, good to see you again, sir. Good to see you, Michael. Well, guys, you you guys do this survey uh, twice a year. You, you did this one in, in January. And you guys, in the sentiment survey, interviewed, what, 100 institutional investors about their thoughts moving forward? Yeah, correct. Yeah. And so uh, when it comes to investing in, in U.S. real estate, you know, what, what are they telling you? What are they telling you? Are they, are they increasing their allocations or reducing it? It yeah. seems like some people think real estate's in the, in the tank. Well, never count real estate out. And, and certainly uh, international investors in this space understand that, that uh, in some ways, this is the time to invest uh, in times of uncertainty, that the real fortunes are made in the uh, acquisitions that are made at this time. They are showing a remarkable sense of confidence in the U.S. market in particular. Uh, you're seeing allocations, uh, according to our survey, uh, expanding by 6%. That's not a lot uh, compared to last year. Uh, but uh, it's more than perhaps their intended investment in Europe, which is uh, is an increase uh, or is a, a decrease of five percent. So there is a favoring of the U.S. market for a lot of reasons, and not to mention a, a sense of even though things are hard here, uh, maybe it's a little less hard, a little less unstable than some other markets. Uh, that continues to be a theme that's been running for for many years now. You know, whatever troubles the U.S. are facing, there. Are plenty of troubles to go around throughout the developed world. So this is a continues to be a favored market uh, for the international investor and the institutional investor in particular. Um, there's a remarkable sense of optimism now. We asked these questions back in January, uh, so it doesn't include the latest news in terms of uh, troubles in the regional bank sector in the United States and uh, with Swiss uh, bank in in, in Europe. However, even with the rising interest rate uh, environment, there was remarkable confidence about their ability, especially in the second half, to make intelligent investments. There is some expectation that there will be some distress, although there's a lot of opinions about how much of that there will be. It certainly won't be the bonanza that we saw uh, during the RTC days in the early 90s in terms of a, kind of a massive sell-off. However, there will be opportunities as some, of, some assets come up for refinance, now they have to be refinanced at 5 or 6% versus 1%. Uh, 
that changes the whole economic uh, picture for an individual asset. So there will be opportunity there as we go forward. I find it interesting, the kind of consensus around when the, uh, when the Fed is going to stop raising interest rates. And, and more than half uh, believe that they're going to stop at some point in the first three quarters. Uh, and also a, a number close to that sees uh, a reduction in interest rates happening somewhere between seven and, and 18 months, if you will. So there is some optimism that, that as hard as this is right now, and as much as there's an increase going on at the moment, that there is likely to be a pullback uh, within the foreseeable future. Uh, and certainly, I think it's probably tough for the Fed and the central banks to be able to continue when you're having uh, continued uh, bank issues. However, you know, I'm not in the business of predicting what they're thinking and where they're going. And inflation certainly is not something that has gone away. So there is, uh, there is reason to be skeptical. And yet at the same time, I think most investors feel like this is perhaps a tough year, uh, but not without opportunities and not without, um, not without a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. What's well, good to hear that uh, the allocation to U.S. Uh, real estate has, has increased. Uh, that, that's positive news. And they like the U.S. Are there certain markets uh, in the U.S. that they favor other, over others? Well, it's interesting. Over the last couple of years, especially as we went through the COVID era, for the first time that we've asked this question, which we've been asking it for about 30 years, we saw smaller kind of secondary markets, especially in the Sun Belt, rising to the top for the first time in, in our history. So you saw places like Austin, Texas, and uh, Nashville in the top spot, Atlanta in the top spot, where New York usually lives. This year, it's changed a bit. Uh, New York, instead of being fifth or sixth in our survey, has returned to number one in the United States and number two internationally right behind London. That was also a surprise to see London rise uh, so high in their esteem as they're looking at investing not just in the U.S., but around the world. You still see high up on our list uh, markets that are very tech-focused in the United States. Atlanta continuing to be very strong, uh, a market that a lot of them would like to be active in. You're seeing the same thing around Dallas and Boston. Uh, again, markets that have a preponderance of tech investing continuing to happen. Now, there's some tech pullback. There's some issues you know, around some of the most successful companies right now in tech. But I believe there continues to be strong growth and strong opportunity for growth in those areas, and and the institutional investor seems to believe that as well. Well, it's good to I think to see uh, New York at the top. And why do you think New York's the top? I mean, certainly their office market has has struggled with the density they deal with, and in a big city like that, of course, New York's New York. It's 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 always going to be great real estate. But why do you think it 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 went back up in the to number one? I think it's a combination of factors. Certainly what you said is absolutely true. New York is New York, and, and it is very much a global center. But also, unlike some other markets, uh, New York is a very diverse market. So it's not just a monoculture of office buildings in the CBD like you see in a lot of other cities. Instead, uh, it is very diverse. You work, live, play all within a few blocks. Uh, that those neighborhoods, whether it's in the U.S. or it's international, have been the first to bounce back from any kind of uh, kind of withdrawal in terms of COVID. They're the first ones where people want to work or where they come to work. Obviously, they're not at the level that they were in terms of office utilization as they were before. But even in Midtown in Manhattan, you see a lot of other uses continue to be there, and it's pretty pretty lively there. You compare that maybe to a market like uh, you know 
downtown Washington, D.C., which is primarily federal office buildings, they continue to struggle. Uh, you see that in other cities as well, where you have downtown office buildings without much in terms of residential or activities around it. Um, that, that being said, Washington, D.C. has risen into the top levels as well. And I think a lot of that investment is happening in Northern Virginia. I think HQ2 is well on target uh, in Northern Virginia with uh, Amazon. And it is really the headquarters for data centers in the world. And a lot of our investors are very active in the data center investing business. About half of U.S. data centers are in Northern Virginia. Uh, so there is uh, quite a lot of interest in that area as well. But New York, it's not just that it's New York. It's that New York is a diverse um, and multi-purpose downtown that even if people are worried about density in terms of being close to people that might have COVID, for example, um, they're very quickly shifting out of that fear and into uh, movement. The question remains for everyone, especially something that is not the best of the best office building. How much are tenants going to be using it going forward? Because the work from home phenomenon continues. Uh, you're still seeing half of the mass transit during the week uh, that we had back in 2019. But interestingly, the transit levels during the weekends exceed what they were before COVID occurred. In other words, people may not want to work downtown, but they want to live there. And I think that is really a driver. That's something that a lot of investors are paying attention to, that the more mixed use an area can be, the more resilient it is. I you know, spent a lot of time in the Midwest uh, over the last few decades, and it reminds me of farming with monoculture versus having a diverse set of crops that you can grow really, really fast if you have one crop, uh, but you are more vulnerable to stress, more vulnerable to threats, um, and it's harder to be resilient. If you combine a lot of different crops in one plot of land, uh, you're more likely to thrive for the long term. And certainly that seems to be proving itself out with cities like New York. Yeah, I like that analogy. It's, uh, you know, it's really the, the pinnacle of mixed use, right? Yeah. Right there in, in New York City. When you look at your sentiment of foreign investors investing in the U.S., what about uh, sector? Uh, what do they tell you about their interest there on the property types? On uh, property types, you continue to see trends that have emerged over the last several years. Multifamily and actually residential in general. So there's a, a growing uh, group over the last 10 years of institutional investors that are investing in single-family rental uh, that they're really approaching whole neighborhoods as if they were a single apartment building. You're seeing a lot of that in markets like Atlanta that have been growing very fast and is predominantly a kind of suburban market, if you will. So that's a very popular property type. But regular garden-style apartments continue to do well, as do you know downtown apartment buildings. Uh, that, given that we have a housing shortage in the United States and continue to have it across all the markets, that there is a consensus that this is a strong area to be and where the demand continues to outstrip supply by a significant amount. There's a lot of investors that actually are really focused on affordable housing. Uh, they see this as a, as a growth market and a stable market where you're less likely to see volatility. Uh, so a lot of them are trying to put together good affordable housing investment strategies. 40% of the people we asked uh, said that they would be willing to take less of a return on multi on, on affordable housing than they would on regular housing uh, in, and make those investments. Now, that may be a little bit of just someone talking to a survey 
But there is this idea that you have more stability in an affordable housing space than perhaps you do in, in market housing. So that, that continues to be very strong. Industrial continues to be strong. There is a little bit of a back off in terms of logistics uh, compared to maybe a year or two ago where you know people were buying like crazy. The tech companies are pulling back a little bit, but that doesn't mean they're leaving and it doesn't mean that it isn't continuing to grow. So industrial is still very much a sweet spot and a lot of investors have done very well, and a lot of investors are expanding into uh, more kind of specialty types within the industrial space. So think data centers, think movie studios, think cold storage. These are all very interesting areas that have seen tremendous growth, and there's a tremendous demand for some of these specialized industrial properties. Uh, so those are the two favorite areas. What has dropped precipitously in, in, in attractiveness to institutional investors? is office. And office has traditionally been what they invest in. That if you're coming from another country, you invest in a shiny office tower in midtown Manhattan. They're not leaving it. They still have significant portfolios in office. But in terms of wanting new office buildings, it's at the bottom of their list in terms of priorities below even retail. So, it, and I don't think that's because there's a, a, a concern that office is no longer a viable product, but it is uncertain. And it doesn't matter how many articles you read about about bosses insisting that everyone return to work. We still don't have that return to the physical location that we had back in 2020. It's going to take a while. And the question is, when people come back, how will they use office? Again, it gets us back to this mixed-use question. And how do you make uh, an entire neighborhood work better if it's you know more of a polyculture? There's a lot of different kinds of asset classes all helping each other thrive. Retail only thrives where there's a lot of people. So any retail that is in a traditional office CBD is probably struggling right now because you just don't have as much foot traffic. You don't have as many people having lunch or you know picking up something from a store on their way home. So I think those are, are the real concerns of retail. Interestingly, hospitality continues to rise in interest. Uh, and uh, you're seeing uh, you know about 43% of those surveyed saw this as an attractive investment going forward this year. Certainly when it comes to tourism, we're seeing, you know, incredible kind of record-breaking rates in terms of uh, travel and hospitality, uh, but business travel continues to lag. So I think that's one of the questions, which hospitality is going to succeed or fail going forward? And it's all a moving target. So we did this survey back in January, and already the market seems to have changed quite a bit, again, given some of the stress in the banking sector. Right. And, you know, when it comes to foreign investors investing in the U.S., it would seem that that a lot of those foreign investors are less leveraged. Maybe they're all cash um, and they might might have they increased their their interest in U.S. real estate because of that, that maybe they're now more competitive and can get properties at a lower basis. I think that that's a that's a tough one to say, Michael. I think you know a lot of markets are seeing that. Um, one of the things that's making it tough, actually, for investors in U.S. real estate is that we have still not marked to market. So there's real question with very few trades taking place. What is the value of that portfolio of office and retail and residential buildings? Without the trades in the United States, we're not able to really ascertain what we think the value is. If you look at some of the European markets, they've already marked down quite a few portfolios uh, by as much as 25%. At the same time, if you look at REITs, publicly traded stocks in real estate companies, you are seeing a downgrade. So there's a gap between what people are reporting or what people think the values might be at this moment in time 
and what they may be at this moment. Of course, wait long enough if you can, and the values are likely to come back up. But at this point, if you were to sell a building on the market today, there would likely be a significant discount. And that's why no one's trading. That is frustrating. That's frustrating for people to be able to ascertain. The bid-ask spread is still significant. Um, so you're seeing a lower transaction volume, certainly in the first quarter, than we saw even in the last quarter of last year. And then, of course, those wonderful interest rate rises, they make it even tougher, um, make it tougher to finance and, and, frankly, tougher just to make the numbers pencil out because your cost of capital has gone up. Yeah. And it seems like when um, the world and, and foreign investors think more about climate change than potentially than a lot, a lot of U.S. investors do, um, what did they tell you there? There was an interesting answer to a question. We tried to figure out if these investors felt that we were appropriately pricing climate change risk in investments that are being made now. And 86% said no, that we are not pricing the risk. And if you look at the markets just on a casual basis, it starts to make sense. Think about those markets that perhaps are enduring greatest stress because of climate change related issues and storm issues. Uh, a lot of it in the Sun Belt, a lot of it in places like Southern Florida with sea level rise. Values there have never been better. Uh, you look at Texas, which has issues ranging from heat uh, to dryness to infrastructure issues around electricity. No impact in terms of their values. They look terrific. Phoenix, uh, literally a suburb of Phoenix, has run out of water, and yet you're not really seeing any back down in terms of values in those areas. So there is some concern that we're not accounting for what may be significant risk in these portfolios. Now, that being said, it, you know things could back down. Uh, we saw a lot of snowfall and rain in California, so we might see fewer uh, fires uh, in the next season. I'm very much looking forward to seeing things return perhaps to more normal uh, moisture levels. Uh, so we may get some respite and these markets may settle down a little bit. But there is certainly concern, especially given European and Canadian investors have much more sensitivity to issues of sustainability than we do perhaps in the United States, uh, they're not sure if uh, they're appropriately pricing the risk going forward. You're also seeing much more of a demand for sustainability uh, around the world uh, for investments. So another risk is that uh, is obsolescence. So if your building is not sustainable, if you're not looking at trying to get to carbon neutrality or as close as possible to that, it may be less valuable for those class A tenants that are demanding uh, that those things are paid attention to. So there is concern about that and concern that the U.S. markets uh, and U.S. investors are saying, well, we want access to that kind of capital, so we need to really pay attention to, if you will, a step up in ESG standards uh, across the board, despite whatever political football this has become, uh, this is an important way to attract capital and to create that class A uh, building, whether it's a, an office, industrial, or residential. Those buildings that have legitimate you know, carbon neutrality credentials attract the best, the best tenants and are able to attract higher rents. So one of the things that is becoming very, very clear that if you want a class A building, you really have to pay attention to the highest standards when it comes to carbon neutrality and to sustainability and reliability. Those things are how we get alpha in this environment. This is how a building does better than other buildings that are comparable. 
That is by really paying attention to this. That's what capital wants. That's what the tenants want. Therefore, that's what real estate investors want. Yeah. Yeah. I lead a team that sells office buildings in the U.S. and and, and, and been meeting with some of the largest office owners, and they're certainly aware of that and taking it and, and working on it, even though it's a time when office occupancy is, is trailing. Uh, they're, they're definitely on it. And you talked about Phoenix, uh, uh, an area of Phoenix not having water. At least they have tequila there, I'm sure. So they're probably- That's true. That helps. <laughs> that helps. be fine. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking with Gunnar Branson, uh, CEO of AFIRE, about foreign investor interest in U.S. real estate. And were, were there any signs um, from your report about distress and their interest in distress? You mentioned office kind of dropped down, but that seemed like where there might be some great bargains. I, certainly, I, I think a lot of it, a lot of institutional international investors have literally been waiting for distress to occur for some time now. Uh, however, I think it's pretty clear that we're not, given the amount of capital that is looking for deals, you're not going to see the same level of kind of distressed opportunities that maybe you saw in the early '90s in the United States. Uh, but there are opportunities to be found. The question is going to be, especially in office. All right, you can buy that office building at a discount, but how much of an obsolescence risk are you taking on? Is that office building, even at a discount, going to make sense in terms of being able to maintain leasing levels? Um, or are you going to be catching a falling knife? Are you going to be dealing with an asset that's obsolescent as an office building? It's not going to be able to provide for the demands of the tenancy for a good office building. Um, are you even going to be faced with uh, the idea that you might have to convert it to some level, uh, including some sort of residential component within that same building? Nothing wrong with that. In fact, you know, the U.S. real estate market has often converted uh, other asset classes into residential, most notably much of downtown Manhattan is, is old industrial warehouses that were turned into very expensive lofts. Uh, in order for that to happen, though, the basis has to go down. The value of the asset has to be low enough that it makes economic sense to convert it. But there's a lot of discussion around that. Where's the demand? The demand is for multifamily. Where is the oversupply? The oversupply is an office. So there is a logic to it. It's just the numbers have to come in line in such a way that it's, it's just doable. And I think that's the danger that people are aware of, but they're also excited about the opportunity of doing something along those lines. Yeah, that's a good point. In fact, we're tracking on my team all the office buildings where we feel the basis is low enough to potentially convert. Um, and then the other factors that make buildings more convertible, especially the demand for residential and the rents that, in that market. So we are tracking that uh, and uh, I hope to have a lot of, a lot of conversions uh, happen. Well, well Gunnar, when you, when you look back at this uh, report and this, this sentiment survey, uh, what what do you leave our audience with to think about moving forward? I think certainly the, the big factors are, A, don't count out the international capital. Uh, it's very, very interested in the U.S. markets for a lot of different reasons. They are going to be more concerned around ESG and, and hitting those marks. So don't expect to be able to sell uh, a build, you know, to, to, to have an acquisition of a building for international capital where you haven't paid attention to them they're going to be more concerned about it. Uh, also realize that, you know, even though perhaps the regional banks are going to be less reliable in terms of uh, uh, debt capital for real estate uh, over the next several quarters, certainly debt funds, uh, non-bank capital uh, continues to be interested in investing in the real estate market. So I think those opportunities are there. I think we need to be careful. 
uh, I think, even though this really is a time of opportunity, there's no question in my mind, but it's not going to look the same as it did the last recession. And that's almost always the case. But certainly now, given all the different forces that are in play right now, including migration of people from one part of the country to another part of the country. We've seen a big migration from places like California and New York to some of these Sunbelt markets. We may see a reversal of that in the next five to seven years towards those markets that have more water and are less threatened, perhaps, by some issues of climate change. Uh, if that is the case, even if, even if you're just seeing a slowdown of the growth in some of these Sunbelt markets, even if they continue to grow, that slowdown is not something that's baked into the pricing that people have right now. They're expecting continued growth at a certain level. So I think we all have to be very careful, very thoughtful about what we're doing. And institutions in general, they tend to think that way. They're thinking long term. So it's, it's a good idea if you're a non-institutional investor to pay attention to how they're thinking. They may not always have the right answer. And alpha may very well be something that a small entrepreneur is the only one who can find. But at least keep your eye on what their concerns are. I think they're going to be a nice guide guidepost as we go through a, a kind of a, a murky market where we don't really know exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. Did their allocation um, overall um, go up for real estate versus other investments? Uh, what did that, how did that change? Well, we, we do have a denominator effect kind of in the play right now because, you know, everything's kind of dropping ever, elsewhere. So I think it would be difficult to characterize that, especially at a, a, a increase of 6% in terms of generally coming into the U.S. I don't think the real estate allocations are significantly changing, um, other than the fact that the world around it is changing. So, you know, your allocation suddenly looks bigger because, you know, the rest of your portfolio looks smaller. So we're in a, we're in a dropping market. So those kinds of things become a little unstable. But I think philosophically, they're not saying, hey, let's expand, you know, let's intentionally go out there and expand our real estate. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, real estate can be a hedge against inflation and, uh, certainly is, is something you can bank on. It's not going away. It's not going down to zero. Well, we hope not, right? Right. <laughs> well, Gunnar, thanks for the information. Thanks for being on the show. Good to see you. My pleasure. All right. And uh, thank you for joining us around the country. If you would like to, if you're a foreign investor and would like to look at properties available, uh, we have a currency converter and language translator on our website. If you would like to sell a property and have it exposed to the foreign market, we have that as well at bullrealty.com. Or if you're a broker and want to see what we've done there, check it out uh, and see about doing that on your site if you haven't done it already. Well, thanks for sharing the show. Uh, please let us know what you think. And until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Appreciate the show? Consider referring business or doing business with our sponsors. Bull Realty is a commercial real estate sales, leasing, and advisory firm doing business throughout the Southeast, headquartered in Atlanta. Visit bullrealty.com for more information. Commercial Agent Success Strategies provides video training for commercial agents. This training gets five-star reviews from even the most experienced brokers. Learn more at commercialagentsuccess.com. Com. You're invited to connect with us on your favorite social media. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Don't miss a show of special interest to you. Be sure and subscribe to the show on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. 
And at the show website, CREshow.com, you can subscribe for a weekly email announcing the show topic and guest. While you're there, you also found more videos and podcasts. Thank you for watching or listening to America's Commercial Real Estate Show.